So um, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, during my undergrad, I was involved in CREW here on campus at U of I. Um, so if you guys don't know what CREW is, that's short for Campus Crusade for Christ. It's a, a campus ministry. They have um, chapters in tons of different uh, campuses and universities around the country and even in the world. Um, I have, in fact, a friend who is a missionary in Italy right now through CREW. But, um, but yeah, so I was involved in CREW in my undergrad, and one of the things that CREW does, um, one of the things that you can be involved in is something called a summer project where you spend a portion of your summer um, at some other location, whether it's stateside or overseas, and you're basically doing ministry and missions work um, during that time. And you're sharing the gospel with people, you're doing evangelism, and you're getting your own spiritual development. Um, and so I went on a summer project the summer between my junior and senior years of college, and I went to uh, Ocean City, New Jersey. So I spent the summer there. And while I was there, we, we did a men's retreat. Um, and that men's retreat has actually, it was, it was pretty impactful for me, and it kind of stuck with me. The retreat involved um, a long hike um, that we had to go through, through some wooded areas along the beach. There was a lot of sandy beaches there, and some of the forests um, went right down to the beach, and so we had to hike through that during the retreat. Um, but before we started the hike, um, the leaders of the retreat were asking all of the guys different questions, and depending on the answers to their questions, they would actually handicap us. And so, for instance, um, if you didn't have like a specific verse memorized to help you combat a certain type of sin struggle or something like that, if you didn't have scripture memorized to be able to do that, um, they would like tie up your arm so you couldn't use it or tie up your leg or something like that. And so... Most guys had some handicap to varying degrees. There were some guys even who had no use of their legs at all. They had to be carried during the entire hike because of how they had responded. And during the hike, it wasn't just a hike. That would have been hard enough as it was, but there was obstacles on the hike as well. And so we had to try to get through those all together. So like one of them was a, a mile long, just like run, some people weren't running, obviously, but um, run on the beach. One of the obstacles was they had this pole set up. It was about five, maybe five and a half feet off the ground, and we all had to get over it without touching it at all. Um, and as you can imagine, that's really, really difficult when some people don't have any use of their legs and a lot of people don't have use of their arms, and we all had to get over it. Um, and so... All that to say, it was a very difficult hike. Um, and the point of the exercise overall was to help us see some of the ways that we undermine our own spiritual journeys. We're all going to face trials and temptations and hardships in this life. That's inevitable. Um, but the thing that we oftentimes don't think about is the fact that there are ways that we think there's things that we do, there's desires that we have that slow us down, even amidst those trials. Um, the trials themselves are hard enough as it is, but sometimes we have ways of thinking and habits um, or just desires that hinder us even worse. They weigh us down. They can even cripple us, just like some of the guys were crippled during the, the retreat. 
They make already different, difficult circumstances 10 times harder than they, sh than they should be. Um, and the, the men's retreat helped us and was meant to help us guys realize some of those hindrances that we have in our own lives, whether we're not um, really devoting ourselves to the word and learning about Christ through it or whatever the case may be. Um, it was meant to help us recognize how we are in a lot of ways hurting ourselves in our own uh, walks with Christ. Um, and that was huge because it helped us to take steps to put those things to an end. Um, and in our passage this morning, James is doing very much the same thing that that men's retreat did. He's offering us wise counsel on how to persevere through our trials. And he does so by warning us of one of the most harmful thoughts that we can have amidst our trials. Um, it poisons and cripples our ability to persevere well. And so he's pointing it out to us so that we'll recognize it and turn from it. He wants us to know how wrong and deceitful it is so that we'll kill it. Um, he also not only points that out so that we'll recognize it, um, but he also wants us to know what the counter to that lie is. So we'll see that this morning also. He offers us the truth to replace the lie. Um, he gives us hope and encouragement to hold on to instead of what actually harms us. So I want you to keep all that in mind this morning. We're going to be looking at James 1, verses 12 through 18. So if you haven't turned there already in the Bibles, I encourage you to turn there now. It's on page uh, 1011 in the Black Bibles in the pews. But like I said, keep that in mind. Keep what I was just talking about at the forefront of your mind as we read the passage. Um, Notice the warning that James gives about the dangerous thought, and then look for his encouragement, what he wants us to remember and believe instead. So um, with that, let me read um, God's word to, to us this morning. This is James 1, verses 12 through 18. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then des desire, when it is con has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, this passage is James's final thoughts on the first major theme that we really see him bring up in his letter, um, which is this idea of persevering through trials. And like I said before, he's helping us to be aware of one of our biggest negative tendencies in the midst of our trials. Um, in those seasons of hardship, we want to blame God or maybe even others for the sin that we're tempted to commit and do commit. We think, and I know I think this way at times, it's easy to think, well, it's hard enough to not sin when things are going well. So how can I be expected to fight sin successfully when things are going terribly? 
We can so often think that way. So what do we do when we have those thoughts? We accuse God of being the cause of our temptation and sin. Because of that, though, we're actually crippling our ability to persevere through those hardships. We're not helping ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. So James writes this passage to help us recognize that tendency and to equip us to fight against it. Like at my men's retreat, James doesn't want us to come up to the next hurdle in life and have only one leg to try to jump over it. He's trying to help us have the right mindset so that when we face the inevitable difficulties of this life, we'll be able to endure them while maintaining godliness and Christ-likeness. We can pursue holiness even when it is incredibly difficult to do so. Like Paul in his letters, James wants us to run the race well. He wants us to receive our reward at the end by taking to heart what he says. And to sum up what James is saying, he's saying this, Christian, brother, sister, persevere, for your good father promises you eternal life. That's the main point of this text, and it's James's final word on this subject. Um, so I want to say it again because I know some of you guys like taking notes. Christian, persevere. For your good Father promises you eternal life. To show us that, James starts by flat out telling us that. We see that in the first verse. Um, In his usual fashion, as we've already seen multiple times in the letter already, he starts by laying out his main assertion right up front. And so that's what we see here. Then he develops it. He elaborates. And so that's what we see next. After he lays out his main assertion, He turns to warn us of the danger of thinking that it is God who tempts us. And finally, after that, he's trying to reorient our thinking. He's saying, don't think this way. Here's an alternative right way to think about this. Um, This is how you can persevere amidst your trials. And so that's what he comes to at the end. He reminds us of what God really does for us. He doesn't tempt us. He's incredibly good. He blesses us. He is kind. So that's how I plan on structuring this sermon, just so that you know that right from the get-go. I'm just going to follow James's, his own structure as he works his way through the passage. And so those are basically the three major points I'm going to highlight as we go through it. So let's get started with my first point. Um, Follow along with me as I look again at verse 12. Look with me at, at that verse. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Isn't that such a beautiful verse to reflect on? Isn't that such an encouragement to you? Think about that. Let me read it again and just dwell on this for a moment. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Redeemer, take a moment, like I just said, to stop and think about how precious that truth is. Think about the trials that you are going through right now in your own life. They're going to be different for all of us, but almost certainly we're all experiencing some trial to one degree or another. What's yours? Is it health concerns? Is it financial worries? Is it issues at work? Relational conflict? 
Are you struggling with shame or loneliness or doubt or anxiety or depression? Has something terrible happened and you don't know how to make sense of it? Redeemer, our lives are and will be full of these moments. But take heart. As James says, those trials are not purposeless and your faithful perseverance through them will not go unrewarded. The crown of life awaits us on the other side of that darkness. Be encouraged by that. Before anything else, be encouraged by that. And embrace the hope that James is trying to give us here. Look to God's promises. Think about what we are prone to look at in our moments of trial. Think about for yourself. When you're going through a hard time, what is it that you want to turn to for hope? Do you think, seek simple pleasures to just try to escape the, the hardship? Do, maybe, maybe you don't try to escape it, but maybe you try to find your hope in temporary fleeting things that won't actually satisfy. Do you put your hope in other people? Do you put your hope in having the right kinds of habits or practices in your life? Maybe you just think that as long as you go through the right spiritual motions, you'll get through it all right. But let me ask you this. When you get that news that you or your spouse or even one of your children has cancer, where will your comfort come from in that moment? When things get really hard, where will your comfort come from? How will you find hope and peace amidst the fear and confusion you're dealing with? It's in the promises of God. It's not going to be in those fleeting pleasures or things that you're hoping will satisfy you. They will not last. They will not truly comfort you. The promises of God will, though. Our hope and joy and peace come from knowing him. Even our Bible reading isn't helpful if we're not seeking him in it. Friends, perseverance is fundamentally a matter of trust. This is, this is a truth that we need to get. If you want to persevere, it's a matter of where you're placing your trust. It's a matter of faith. And James is reminding us of God's promise in verse 12 so that we would trust him. James wants us to believe that God will make true on his promises. And that belief will be our anchor in whatever storms we face in this life. James understands something else that's also really profound about the human heart too. If we don't see how something will benefit us, we aren't going to want to do it. Um, and it's interesting, so think about that. We don't want to do things that we realize won't benefit us um, or won't provide us some pleasure or satisfaction or something like that. Um, I know typically, if, I, if I'm just like thinking about that, at first glance, it seems like that sort of tendency in us is probably due to our sinful nature because we're selfish individuals. We just want things that benefit and serve us. But I would actually argue against that. I would say that that's not necessarily part of our sinful nature. God did not design us to be just like masochistic where we're just supposed to be happy with having no happiness or joy or pleasure in our lives. Think about it. Why would God create a perfect and beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to live in if he didn't want them to enjoy it? 
um, or even more significantly than that, why would he actually use rewards as a way of motivating us in Scripture if we weren't supposed to want those rewards? Jesus did that over and over again in his own ministry. Consider Luke 6, uh, verses 32 through 35. You don't need to turn there. Um, You can if you want. But in that passage, Jesus is commanding us to love our enemies. Um, And he says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And here's the key part. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus used future reward as our incentive and motivation to make sacrifices now in this passage. He doesn't simply say, love your enemies and make sacrifices just because that is what I'm commanding you to do. No, he's actually telling us to do it because we will be rewarded for our love and sacrifice. Now, again, that probably sounds selfish, but that's, it's not wrong for us to seek happiness and pleasure. The problem with it is, this is usually the problem, so usually our seeking happiness and pleasure is not good, but the problem is that we settle for things that aren't good for us, things that aren't of God. Consider another passage from Luke. This is in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. So um, it says this, Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you are repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, don't settle for earthly rewards. Seek seek joy, seek happiness, but seek it in what God offers you, what God wants you to have. Don't seek it in earthly rewards. Don't seek it in prestige or attention on this earth. Set your sights on something way better than that. Set your sights on the resurrection that God offers you. Again, the problem is not that we necessarily even want repayment or reward. The problem is that we don't go to God for it. We turn things into idols when we should seek God, the giver of all good things. But again, getting back to James 1, 12, James wants us to trust that God will reward us for our steadfastness in trials. He wants us to know that God has promised us, if we persevere, that the promise and reward, um, that that should motivate us. I plan on coming back around to the, the specific reward later, so I'm not going to touch on that now. And my third point, I'll actually get to what the crown of life actually is. Um, but for now, let's just take James's posture of trust that we see him calling us to in, these, in this verse. In whatever trials you're facing right now, don't get lost in the darkness. 
Don't let it become the only thing that you see. Look to God and know that he sees, he knows, and he has far better plans for you on the other side of the darkness if you trust him through them. And that is even true if our trials lead to our earthly death. And that's crazy to think about. But death itself can't even stop God from fulfilling his promises to you. So have hope. When all you feel, maybe in the moment, is pain and suffering, remember that God has promised something better for you. If you hold on and have faith, trust him. And do not resort to questioning and blaming God for your sins. That's where James goes next. He wants to turn now to warning us about the danger of temptation and the danger of thinking that way. So that's where we get to our second point. So look with me at verses 13 through 16 um, in James 1 again. The passage says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So James is very clear here about what he wants us to know. He's just encouraged us, but now he's warning us also. One of our great dangers in the midst of our trials and hardship is that we'll begin to think that God is actually tempting us with sin, that he almost wants us to fail and turn to sin. And instead of trusting him, we grow suspicious. We begin to think of him as almost malevolent, malevolent or even evil himself for having those intentions for us. We will blame him for our faults. We don't even realize the disastrous consequences that can have for us. Why is it so bad and dangerous to think that way, though? James gives us two reasons um, and two answers to that question in the text. And so we're going to look at those. The first one, and he points that out, um, he points out that the thought that God tempts us is just simply untrue and unbiblical. So that's where he starts. He's saying, don't think this way because it's just flat out not true. It's a lie, so don't believe it. Um, it's a deception, as he says in verse 16. But then also, the second line of thinking or the second point that he's trying to make is that that line of thinking will lead to death, your death. There is no reward found at the end of that road. You will not persevere if you think that way. And so flee that thought. So let's, more, let's look more at depth at both of those ideas. So the first one, um, let me read verse 13 again because this is where he starts to make this point. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Okay, so he's telling us, don't do that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So to say it again, the first issue with saying that God tempts us is the fact that it's simply not true. James is saying that very clearly. Um, God doesn't tempt us. But how does James prove that? That's what we want to look at now. Um, and if you... If you Think about it. His argument is actually a little strange. 
He says, as the verse writes, that God doesn't tempt us because God himself isn't tempted with evil. Um, God cannot be tempted with evil. It says those word for word. Now, if you think about that, if you're like me and you hear that argument, that reason, he's saying God doesn't tempt you because he isn't tempted with evil. You might be thinking, okay, but James, how does that actually prove your point? Why does God's lack of temptation mean that he doesn't tempt us? Just because God isn't tempted doesn't mean that he can't tempt others. Um, that isn't necessarily a super solid argument at first glance. That's, that's, that's what I'm prone to thinking. Um, and do you, do you see why, why I'm saying that? It, it almost seems like James's argument is unrelated to the point that he's trying to prove. But let's give it some more thought, though. Because God can't be tempted, why does that then mean that he doesn't tempt us? What do you think about that? Um, I was reading up on this and just reflecting on this on myself, and one commentator I came across addressed that very question, and I really appreciated his response. Um, he said this, so answering that question, because God can't be tempted, why does that then mean that he doesn't tempt us? He says this, we must be, we must be under, what must be understood is that temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that to be brought about in man. And so he says that, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, that's true. Now, why does that imply that he wouldn't desire that to be brought about in man? And as I was reflecting on that, um, it was helpful to reconsider and to remember, we are God's image bearers. From the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he always meant for humans to reflect his character and nature. And if that's the case, which it is, why then would he urge us towards sin, the very thing that is the opposite of his character and nature? The answer, of course, is that he wouldn't do that. He doesn't do that. Since God's desire is for his image bearers to reflect him because he wants us to reflect him, to be like him, who doesn't sin, then it would be completely counterproductive for him to tempt us to do that very thing, to sin. So no, God does not want us to do evil. He does not tempt us with it. He wants us to be holy like him. That is why what James is getting at in this argument. And he goes on to the next verse to develop his argument even further. So look with me at verse 14. He says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Friends, God is not the one who tempts us with sin. It's our own hearts that tempt us with it. We are lured and enticed by what, does the verse say? By our own desires. We must get that. Each one of us, no one is responsible for my sin but me. And no one is responsible for your sin except you. And please recognize the implications of that. If temptation and sin flows out of our own hearts, then neither God nor other people can be blamed for our sins. 
So women, when you have conflict with your husband and he says something hurtful to you, that does not excuse you to be harsh in return with him. Your desire to lash out in anger at him is not due to his hurtful words. It is due to the sin in your heart. And guys, you don't get to neglect your family when you get home because you had a long, hard day at work. Your desire to be maybe lazy and passive is not a result of your circumstances and what you had to deal with that day. It's a result of the sin in your heart. None of us will get to stand before God on Judgment Day and say that we sinned because so-and-so did something or because something else happened to us. Only you will be to blame for your sin on that day. So don't try to shift that blame to someone else. It doesn't benefit you to do it. You're only fooling yourself. And that gets to the second issue regarding why we should not say that God tempts us. As James says, that will lead to our death. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice the vivid imagery that James uses here in this verse. He's actually using this idea of pregnancy to describe what he's trying to communicate and talk about in dealing with temptation and sin. Our corrupt desires cause us to embrace temptation, not flee from it. They will conceive and produce sin as naturally as children are born to their parents. That's basically what he's saying here. But then what happens? It doesn't just end there at the birth of sin. Sin matures. It grows, as the verse continues to say. And eventually, it itself gives birth to something. And it gives birth to death. Our temptations will naturally and inevitably lead us to death if we do not flee them and kill them. James is focusing in this passage on a particular kind of temptation, so notice that. This kind of temptation is the kind that we enter into. That is why it is conceiving and giving birth to sin. This is temptation in which we are offered something and we accept it even though we know it is wrong. The opportunity to sin exists because of our desires and we choose that sin. So as a quick aside, that is why James's statements here that God cannot be tempted with evil is not a contradiction with the fact that Jesus was said to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan. I'm sure some of you guys maybe thought of that passage um, when that passage came to your mind as I was reading this. How can James say that God cannot be tempted when the Gospels very clearly state that Jesus, who is God, was tempted in the wilderness? How can we keep both of those things as true? How can we reconcile those two ideas together? Hebrews also says that Jesus was tempted. So how can, how can we reconcile those ideas together? Verse 15 helps us see the answer to that. It helps us understand the context and the meaning of what James is saying about temptation here. When temptation was talked about in the gospel accounts, 
it was referring to a general definition of the term. This is, I'm, I was trying to think about the best, best way to describe this, but think when it comes to the Gospels and when, like Mark, for instance, says that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. When it's using the word temptation, it's using a very general definition of the term. Temptation in that sense involved Jesus being offered something that could have potentially enticed him, but didn't. Um, He was hungry and was offered food, but what did he do? He turned it down. He did not accept it. He did not enter into that temptation. So the temptation was simply the opportunity, the objective opportunity that sin could have happened in that moment. The opportunity to sin was there even though no sinning actually took place. So that opportunity to sin is what the passage meant by the phrase being tempted. James is talking about something a little bit different though. In James, temptation is more narrowly defined. James is talking about a subset of temptation within that general definition. Um, James is using the term temptation to describe the occasions when not only is the opportunity to sin there, but we actually enter into it. We do sin. So he's talking about the specific instances when temptation does lead to sin. That is a kind of temptation that God does not and cannot experience. So all that to say, the passages are talking about temptation differently. And there is therefore no contradiction um, between them. But again, that's just an aside. Getting back to my point, James is warning us about what will happen if we allow ourselves to think that God is tempting us and causing us to sin. It will lead to our death. Think about why that is. The reality is that the moment you begin to blame someone else for your sin is the moment that you stop fighting against it. If you will not seek, you will not seek to kill it if you think it is caused by or due to something outside of you, outside of your control even, whether that's God or another person. Consider a medical analogy. Let's say that your doctor tells you that you have high cholesterol. You go in and get some testing done. You find out you have high cholesterol. For many people, if they were to learn that from their doctor, they would try to eat healthier to get their cholesterol levels down. But then let's say you go back to the doctor, um, she's done some further testing, and you find out that you actually have a genetic abnormality that significantly predisposes you towards high cholesterol. Like genetically, you are significantly, significantly inclined towards having that. What would you do then? Now, of course, my analogy isn't perfect because some people would just try even harder to eat healthier to try to keep their their cholesterol down. That would be the case. But think about what most people would do, how most people would respond in that moment. Most people would go back to eating like they had been, knowing that no matter probably what they eat, their cholesterol is going to be high. In a sense, they would resign themselves to it, and they actually would not seek to lower it as hard as they would otherwise. And that's how we can be with our sin. If you do not own your sin, if you blame someone else for it or think that it's out of your hands, then you will minimize it, you will excuse it, and you will continue to do it. And guess what? Sin is never dormant. If left alone, it grows and sears our conscience. 
If left alone, it will deceive you and your heart will grow fond and in love with it. And you won't even realize that it's happening in many ways. It will smother any love you seem to have for God. Um, In the famous words of John Owen, we have to heed this warning. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the reality. That is truth. If you do not stop it, you will face eternal death. So do not, be deci- do not be deceived by the lie that God is tempting you and leading you to sin. Take responsibility for it yourself. Fight the evil desires in your heart and love God, not them. Seek life. Don't embrace death. But then you're probably thinking, how do we do that? When hardship is bearing down on us, how can we choose what is right rather than sin? And James has an answer for us in that too. And that leads to the third point. To persevere in your trials, don't blame shift your sin away to God and others. Don't view him as your enemy. Instead, believe that he is good and will give you something far better than anything your sin can offer you. That is how we can battle against it and persevere well. Look with, look with me at verses 16 and 17. So again, I read verse 16 earlier. This is his transition into the new thought, what he wants to replace the lie that God tempts us, what he wants to replace it with. He's saying, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The deception was what he had just said. Now here's the truth. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James has exposed the lie and is now giving uh, to us the truth to counter it with. And that truth could not be a starker contrast to the lie. Think about it. Look at what this is telling us. Every good and perfect gift is from above. In other words, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this world that is good that does not come to us from God. He is the one who gives all of them to us. Everything that is good has its source and its origin and its creation in him. He is the fount from which all good goodness flows. In him there is no corruption, no evil, no malevolence, no ill will, only goodness. That is our God. Not this character who we grow suspicious of, who we think is trying to sabotage our lives when we're in trial. No, he is good when we, are in, when we aren't in trial and when we're in it. He is only goodness. In your trials, don't lose sight of that. In the midst of them, look for his gifts to you. That has been, at times when I have struggled that has been one of the most helpful things for me to do is to take some time to not just overlook God's daily, even if they're small, but his daily gifts to me um, each and every day, even in the midst of trials. In depression, don't overlook the moments of joy you experience, even if they're fleeting. They're God's special gift to you. When you're feeling utterly alone or some, and someone does some small act of kindness to you that lifts your spirits, don't just overlook that. God is the one who orchestrated that moment for you. When you feel like you are an utter failure at work because something hasn't gone well, um, but you are reminded that you are not defined by your success, that truth comes from God to comfort you. 
We can go through our days so easily overlooking these kinds of gifts from God. And so we can begin to believe that he isn't with us, that he doesn't care, or again, even go so far as to think he, he despises us, he doesn't love us, he hates us even. But those things are there in our lives and they can help us to remember who God is and that he is for us as his people. All of those things are from our heavenly father whose goodness and loving kindness towards us never diminishes or falters. He is not a withholding God. He is a generous one. As the passage says, God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James is saying here is that God, the creator of the stars and moons and planets, some of the most incredible, beautiful things in all of creation, he, the creator of those things, he never changes. His goodness is always and ever perfect. And it is far richer than we could ever be able to fathom. Redeemer, persevere in your trials and fight sin because God is always watching over your soul and is providing you exactly what you need to walk with him, no matter what the trials you face are. If you trust him and walk by faith, he will not let you be overcome by your suffering. He will not withhold a single good thing that you need. Trust that he is good, that he knows what you need, and that his timing is perfect. He is your loving father. He placed every star in the sky and keeps them burning every single day. If he can do that, he can give you what you need. He can protect you. He can sustain you. He is good and wise and powerful enough to care for you in the best possible way, better than you know how to care for yourself. And look with me finally at verse 18. James says this. He finishes with saying, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation, creatures. Notice what James is saying here. He isn't just referring to God's creation of mankind in general. He's actually referring to our regeneration, if you take time to consider it. It says he brought us forth by the word of truth. That literally translated is he chose to give us birth through the word of his truth. James is coming back to the, the pregnancy analogy that he used earlier. Um, but um, where he used it for sin back in verse 15, he's using it now to describe the Christian's rebirth into spiritual life through the word of truth. What was born of sin and evil in the earlier passage that leads to death, God is bringing forth here in verse 18 for good and to be alive. And how is it born? Again, it says through the word of truth. He's talking about the gospel here. He's saying that is how we are born again to eternal life. James is ending his reminder to us about how good and generous God is by reminding us of the greatest and best gift he has ever and could ever offer us. Our rebirth and salvation through Jesus Christ. That is why he says we are the first fruits of his creatures. We are his adopted heirs by faith. We are princes and princesses of our heavenly king. We've been set apart from the rest of creation. And how? Again, that is through Jesus Christ. 
Friends, the gospel of Christ tells us that apart from him, we are dead in our sins. The gospel, apart from him, the story ends for us in verse 15. When our sin is fully grown, it leads to death. That's the end of the story apart from Christ. But that doesn't have to be where the story ends. God freely offers salvation to all who trust in him. You cannot free yourself from your own sin. We want to think that we can, but we can't. And like, um, like we've already talked about, you can't explain it away or blame your sin on someone else. You can't give yourself life, just like a dead person can, can't revive themselves. We, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. So just as a, an anatomically dead person cannot bring themselves back to life, we cannot give ourselves spiritual life when we are spiritually dead. No, we are utterly helpless without Jesus. But out of his unbelievable goodness, God has willed that we would be given life by grace as an undeserved gift through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross so that you could have that which you could not earn for yourself. Jesus is the Father's greatest and most precious gift to us, and we already have him if we have faith in what he has done for us. Through him, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. Through him, we have life. This is where we come full circle in this passage. So look back with me at verse 12. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James tells us that God will give us the crown of life if we remain steadfast in trial. So what is the crown of life? It isn't a literal crown, though I guess who knows, maybe it will include that as well one day. But no, James is speaking figuratively here. We see this phrase used at other times. A crown was often meant at that time to symbolize glory and honor. As one commentator says, the crown is the emblem of spiritual success given by the king of the universe to those who keep their faith in the midst of suffering and temptation. And then the commentator goes on to address the word life. So we have the crown of life. So what, what's he talking about there? Life should be taken as identifying the reward. So when we read the crown of life, he's saying we should actually read that as the reward that is life. The crown isn't actually the reward. Life is. The crown is just pointing us to the fact that life is the reward. The reward, that is life. This life is, of course, not physical life, but eternal life. The enjoyment of God's presence on into eternity. So what is verse 12 saying? We, We understand it because of verse 18. When you look at this verse, Again, don't focus on the crown. That's not the real reward. The reward is the eternal life that we receive from God through Jesus Christ. He is our reward. The reward is the redemption, the forgiveness, the salvation that we have in him. Our reward is getting to taste and see the goodness of God for eternity as we behold Jesus, our Savior, and the radiance of the glory of the Father. There's no greater gift than him. So persevere and trust that he is your promised savior 
and your great reward. Redeemer, don't settle for sin when you could have life with God. Our Father is offering himself to you through Jesus Christ. As you face trials, trust him. Don't be led astray by lies. Persevere, for your good Father promises you eternal life. He's not malevolent. He's not a God trying to sabotage you. He is your loving Father who wants to bless, strengthen, and help you. He sent his son to die so that you would not be crushed under the weight of your sin and suffering. So again, trust him, persevere, and set your sights on his great reward to you and eternity with him and with his son. I want to finish with a famous quote from C.S. Lewis regarding um, that very idea of setting our sights on God's greatest reward rather than settling for, for lesser ones. In his typical, amazing fashion in writing. Um, Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. And um, if you guys noticed last week, uh, Caleb actually briefly mentioned this, um, the same quote. But C.S. Lewis wrote this. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. So he's talking about what I was mentioning in my first point. It's not bad to desire something good. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum when he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So church, let's not be far too easily pleased. Let's seek God and his great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, let that be true of us. Let that be our prayer this morning. God, as we endure the various trials that this life will bring us, help us to hope in the reward of eternal life. The, let us hope in the end of the suffering and pain that this life so often brings. Help us to hope in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.